So there's, uh, there's been this thing going on um, in social media lately where there's been all of these wives who've been surprised at how often their husbands think about the Roman Empire on a weekly basis. And many of you probably don't know that. And so they think this is a weird thing for you to be thinking about regularly. Um, I have been thinking about the exile lately, which is also a weird thing to be thinking about. And uh, it's probably because um, my devotions have had me going through the Psalms, and, and many of the Psalms I've been reading lately have been Psalms were, that were written while Israel was in exile, and, or at least written about their experience of what it felt like to be in exile. And uh, one, of, one, one of the famous Psalms is this, Psalm 137, where they write, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem... Let my right hand forget its skill. You know, and you, you read this psalm and you try to put yourself in their position in exile and you can kind of feel that there's like a darkness kind of hanging over them, right? It's, it's full of this longing that we talk about during Advent, this longing to return to Zion, this longing to return to Jerusalem. And, and really... It wasn't just a longing to return to a land. It was a longing to be in the presence of God. And, and as you go through the Psalms, you'll see, especially these ones that came out of the exile, they, they felt like God was far away from them and God was distant from them. They felt like God had turned his back on them. They ask questions like, God, have you forgotten us? Will, will you forget us forever? They wondered, are you going to be angry with us forever? Are we going to be here? And they, they say here, like, we're in such darkness. We're in such turmoil. Like, how could we ever sing a song in this kind of a situation? And, you know, we're in this season of Advent where I've told us, kind of reminded us, this is a season where we're to learn how to long. It's a season of longing, and, and, and it's intentionally kind of designed that way. That's like this season of, of the year kind of creates a longing in us, right? I just met with a group of people, and they were like, I can't wait till December 22nd or December 24th, whichever one it is, when the days are going to finally get longer because I'm tired of it being dark at 4 o'clock. Like, I just want some light to come in, right? And it just winter causes this longing in us. We want more light. We want warmth. And so it's just kind of natural for us to be longing in this season. And, and in the midst of that, we each kind of have our own situation that we're in, our own kind of longing, our own, we're really in our own kind of an exile in, in a way. Everyone's is unique but, you know, we find ourselves, and a lot of people find themselves kind of looking around at the world and all of the chaos, right, the, the, the wars that are going on all over, the, the wickedness that we see, the evil, and, and people wonder, has God just forgotten about us completely? 
Like, not maybe just my family, but the world. Like, what's going on out there? Has God forgotten? It's, it, it's, it's just such a mess, right? It seems like there's just darkness and chaos. And, uh, and I, I even hear people say, like, in the midst, as I look around at all of the chaos of the world right now and the darkness, how in the world can I sing some of these Christmas carols? Like, can I sing joy to the world right now? Like, do you want me to pretend like everything's just hunky-dory, like everything's fine? How can I sing about joy when everything's such a mess? And and really the question is, um, how do we find hope? How do we find joy? How do we find peace in the midst of our own longings? How do we find, uh, to use the Advent theme, how do we find light in the midst of darkness? I'll give you the quick answer, and then I'll explain it more. The quick answer is, you find hope, you find light in darkness and longing um, by holding on to the promises of God. Uh, That's one of the big themes throughout Scripture. That's where you find hope. Um, Maybe you you have to grab hold of those promises and and rest in them and and trust God to fulfill them. And and that's really, we're going to see this morning, that God has given some beautiful promises to his people, and it was through those promises that they were able to, to hold on and have a level of hope and comfort and peace and some of the deepest darkness we've seen. And we're looking at one particular part of a broader passage, right? The broader passage is Jacob is coming to the end of his life, and as he's about to die, he pronounces blessings over each one of his sons. And it's important to know that as he's pronouncing blessing on each one of his sons, the blessing's not only limited to each son. The blessing is always to them and to their children and to their grandchildren and to their great-grandchildren, right? It's a generational blessing. The blessings, because we're focusing in on Judah for this Advent season, um, these are blessings that are not just pronounced on him, but the entire tribe of Judah. And when things get to Judah, remember, he's the fourth son things get interesting, and they kind of catch us off guard a little bit. He says to Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your fathers, that kind of ticked everybody off. Joseph said, hey, I had a dream, and all of you guys are going to bow down to me. And Judah's like, I don't like that. And so let's come up with a way to sell them off into slavery. They all eventually do bow down to Judah, or bow down to Joseph in Egypt. But what comes at the end is Jacob says over Judah, for the rest of history now, though, all of the brothers will bow down before you. And it's interesting, and and the situation is so different from most other blessings and most other inheritances and how this typically goes, because... We see clearly Judah's being set as kind of the preeminent one of the family, and yet he's not the one who gets the inheritance of the firstborn. That actually goes to Joseph. And uh, we get just a quick summary. You could read chapters before this where that, that gets explained, but here's just a verse from Chronicles that explains it. It talks about the sons of Reuben, the firstborn, and that says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Reuben wasn't the oldest son. Though Judah, 
became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Right? So it's kind of this interesting situation where Judah's being kind of put in the position of the firstborn, kind of the leader, the preeminent one of the family, but he doesn't get the inheritance of the firstborn. That goes to Joseph and his two sons. And uh, there's, you could take a lot from that, but I'm going to leave it at that. And we're told that now as Judah's put in this position of the firstborn, not only is he going to be kind of the preeminent one amongst all of his brothers, but kings are going to come from him. And we're told the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And so that image of a scepter is one of a king, right? Kings held scepters, and it showed power and authority and ruler uh, and uh, ruling and all of that, right? And so it's saying, Judah, you're going to hold a scepter. Kings are going to come from you, and, and they're going to continue to come from your line. And even that idea of the ruler's staff, it says the ruler's staff will come from between his feet, which it's a euphemism. Um, you could talk about come from Judah's loins. His, his family line, his genealogy would be the ones that would continue to produce kings. And, and, but notice, it says, you, that scepter won't... De- and they're going to come before him and bow down to him and, and praise him and his line. None of this sounds like prosperity to us, except for lots of wine. But, but this is talking about prosperity to them. Like, it says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. All right, so donkeys, don't skis, and you're going to ride on donkeys and you're going to tie them off to your choicest vines in the vineyard. Which is dumb if you only stomping going on that it's going to be splashing all over your clothes because you're going to have so much wine in the kingdom. And then it says, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And that's their way of saying he's going to be beautiful. It doesn't, we don't really talk about that, but that's what they're talking about. And so if beauty and prosperity and authority and power. And, and what's really interesting, one of, one of the commentators says from throughout the rest of the Old Testament, kind of this golden age of future blessing is going to be associated with bumper harvests, including grapes. And it seems likely that this passage was a source of these pictures of the Messianic age. So from this point on throughout, you're going to read, and you're going to read about times where there's going to be abundance of wine and talking about this time when the fulfillment of these promises of Judah were going to come about. Which should put little like dings in our head to something we talked about probably like six months ago going through the Gospel of John when what's the first miracle that Jesus does? Makes 180 gallons of wine for a wedding and they're in wash basins. And Jesus is saying what was promised to Judah is now here with me. And you know one of the most well-known kind of portions of this, or at least images in this, uh, these promises and blessings over Judah, is that he's compared to a lion, right? So we hear that Judah's a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? And notice he's not just compared to 
a lion. He's compared to a lion's club, a lion, and a lioness. And there's been a lot of talk about what that means. Some people say, like, it's talking about the different ages of his kingdom. It'll begin as an immature lion cub, and it'll grow to be a mighty lion. And then um, I don't think that's, I think that's probably stretching the analogy a little bit. I think it's just saying, like, it's the totality of a lion. You are a lion in every sense of the word and in every age of life. That's who you will be. And as you go through Scripture, whenever a lion is described, it's described as power and might and kind of conquering, right? When warriors will be called lions, and they're fierce and mighty, and people are afraid of them, right? And people will be said to roar like a lion, and people will tremble in their presence. Um, lions are referenced as being like fierce and just like ripping... It says, like, Judah is going to be formidable to his enemies. His enemies will see him and be put to flight. They'll tremble. They'll be afraid that they're going to be conquered. They're going to be overcome. And yet, his people will be protected in the midst of his strength and his might. That's why, at the beginning, it says, Judah, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. He's going to be a conqueror. He will, be over, he will overcome his enemies. And... It's interesting because like the, the general sweep of this blessing over Judah is that he would be a conquering king and a conquering kingdom. They will overcome. They'll have strength and might. And, and, and it's this picture of the lion. Like the lion goes out, kills its prey, drags it back to its lair, sits eating its prey in the lair and kind of daring anybody to mess with it. Like you try to mess with me, you're going to end up like this thing I'm eating. And it says Judah's going to be like that. They're going to be strong and mighty and conquer and, and people will be afraid to attack them. And it'll be a nation that has prosperity and abundance. And, you know, many people look back and you can see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament, right? You see David was a military leader, right? He had many victories. And they think this is, he came from the line of Judah. You see Solomon, who had a nation full of prosperity. People from the nations were coming to him because of the prosperity. So you see some of those kind of glimpses of this. And yet, in the midst of all of these like really beautiful, powerful promises to Judah, the question is, where were all of those promises when they were in the exile? Right? What? Like, where were they rejoicing over their enemies while they were in Babylon and their country had been completely destroyed? Where was the strong and mighty tribe? Where was the lion, right? Where were God's promises? And uh, Ezekiel kind of picks up on some of this, and, and I'm not going to read straight from Ezekiel because it's a lot, but one commentator kind of sums up Ezekiel's picture of their time in Babylon. He says, in all of these passages of Ezekiel, He's predicting the reversal of Jacob's blessings on Judah. Because of sin, the lion of Judah will be captured, put in a Babylonian zoo. The Judean vineyard will be uprooted, and instead of ruling the nations, they will be subject to them. I think it's a really powerful image, right? That the lion of Judah, the leader of God's people, because of sin, was hauled off, kind of stripped of his power, locked in a zoo to be mocked. And jeered at. And then that, of course, made me think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And uh, that moment when Aslan's kind of shaved and tied to the stone table, and the white witch sits over him and says, This, Aslan, you've come out at last, and such poor guys. No sword, no claws, no teeth, only that foolish Judah sits there 
stripped, tore out, mocked. Where's your God? Where's all the promises that you would be a conquering king in a kingdom? Have God's promises failed? And, and, and have God's people messed up God's promises because they've failed so bad and sinned so greatly that they got hauled off? Like, did they mess up God's promises? Did they mess up God's plans? And in response to that, Calvin has a really great line. He says, you know, that kingdom was not so confirmed as always to shine with equal brightness, but that though for a time it might lie fallen and defaced, it should afterwards recover its lost splendor. It's one of these really powerful and kind of beautiful things about God's promises is that they, they come in seasons. And there's seasons of spring and summer, but there's seasons of winter where it seems like God's promises are, are dead and gone. And, and, you know, there were seasons, like we said, with David and Solomon where you could see the greatness and the prosperity and the beauty of these promises in them, but then there were other seasons of exile and disobedience and other seasons where it seemed like all of God's promises had been dead and buried in the ground and never to come back again. And yet, in the midst of that, when it seemed like all of God's promises had been buried and gone, God's people didn't quit as a whole. They, they never gave up. They never really lost hope. And the question is, how? How do you do that when it seems like all the promises are gone? And the answer is they grabbed hold of the promises because they knew that when their God made a promise to them, he was going to keep his promise. And he had proven himself to be trustworthy over and over and over and over again throughout history. And so they knew if God said this was going to happen, even though we don't understand it, even though we can't see it, even though it doesn't make any sense to us right now, we know our God will bring about this promise. And so they grabbed hold of it. And as a result, they had hope and courage and strength and confidence, even when it was really, really dark. Um, and that's why, as you read through the Psalms, right, there's 150 Psalms, and I think only two of them end without any hope. And that's debatable. But, but most of the Psalms start and end like, like Psalm 13, right? Psalm 13 starts as, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Like, where are you? You're gone. And eventually he, like, screams at him, like, answer me. But then it ends, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. And that's him saying, it seems like you're far away. It seems like none of this makes sense. I don't understand. It seems like everything's a mess. It seems like all of your promises are gone. But I'm going to hold on to your promises because I, I mean, especially this time of year, we're reminded that God sent his son. Right? To be born into the world, to be born of the Virgin Mary, and to be born of the line of Judah. And he came into the world as an exile. Right? He was rejected from his people. He suffered his whole life. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross. He died, was buried in the ground. And in that moment, everyone thought, God's promises are dead again. They're gone. It's all darkness, right? Even darkness spread across the land. And yet, 
Like even in the, though it seemed like there was no hope, God rose him from the dead. And he came victorious um, and overcome and now sits on the throne in heaven as king of kings and lord of lords. And, and when he rose from the dead, every single promise that God had spoken to Judah was fulfilled. Because now we have a king whose kingdom will never end. And we have a king who's worthy of all praise and whom all the nations will bow down to eventually. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. We have a kingdom that has brought about abundant prosperity in its own way. And we have a kingdom that is going throughout the earth, conquering and to conquer in its own way as the gospel spreads throughout the earth and God's kingdom comes and his will is done. Every single promise of Judah was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we don't just have these promises to hold on to today. We actually see the fulfillment of those promises They're not in their fullness yet. That will come one day, but we can see that Christ has come, fulfilled the promises, and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And we can see it. We can see it happening in our own lives. We can see it happening throughout the earth. And so when we enter into our own seasons of darkness and despair, and and it seems like all of God's promises are gone and can't be fulfilled, we look to Christ and we remember God has done it, and he will do it. And that's why Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, I've said these things, and it's really talking about all of his teaching. I've said all of these things so that in me you may have peace or hope. In the world you will have tribulation. It's going to be dark. It's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. But take heart. I've overcome the world as the Lion of Judah. And so in the midst of our own darkness, in the midst of our own struggle, we have hope. We have strength because we have Christ. Not only who died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, but he died and rose again to overcome the world. And because he has overcome by faith in him, we can overcome through him. And so we keep our eyes on him. We keep following him, trusting in him, resting in him, knowing that We can see his promises fulfilled now. And then we long and wait for the day when those promises will be fulfilled in all of their fullness when he comes again. And he establishes his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence just so thankful for your steadfast love and faithfulness. When we're honest with ourselves, we, we know that, that we're neither steadfast nor faithful, that we often are weak and weary. We often wander and become unfaithful. We often just wander off and do our own things and make a mess. And so we're thankful for your faithfulness, that you don't just throw us off in our unfaithfulness, but you come to us and offer us cleansing and forgiveness through faith. 
So, Father, we confess our sins to you. We confess our pride, our arrogance. We confess our lack of faith to you. We confess a whole host of other sins that, are, that you bring to our mind and heart right now. And, Father, we entrust them to you. Because we know that we can't do anything with those sins ourselves, that it's only through Christ that they can be cleansed and forgiven. And so we hand them over to you and ask that you would cleanse us, you would forgive us. And we pray that your spirit would work in us so that we wouldn't just be forgiven for these, but that you would change our hearts, you would change our minds, you would change our lives so that we would live in this world by faith in you, with hope that comes in you, with comfort, strength, courage that comes in you. And Father, may you open our eyes to see the fulfillment of all of your promises in Christ. May we see his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. May it give us strength to live, hope and peace now. And, and Father, may you continue to stir in us a longing for the day when that kingdom will fully come and your will will fully be done. And all God's people said, amen.